kind of struck me during the announcements. There's a bit of a Christmas winter theme there, hey? This is not good, guys. This is not good. I came home yesterday, and uh, Carolyn and the kids had been decorating the whole house with Christmas stuff. And the kids were so excited because they know that I only want it to happen in December. They were so thrilled. They were just like, it, was, it made their day that they were doing something. And guys, I don't know about my kids. It's bad news. It's bad news. Uh, but we're not, we're not doing Christmas yet. In, on Sunday mornings at the bridge. We're, uh, we're still in the book of Acts. We're going to get into a Christmas series in, uh, in a couple of weeks, but we're, we're still in the book of Acts. Um, back in the 1970s, so this is like the era of disco and Woodstock and Afros, which, by the way, that's like the one thing I think I want to talk to God about when I see him face to face. I want to be like, why didn't you give me the ability to grow an Afro? That's like the one, that's the one thing I really wish that I had, but I don't. So anyways, in that era, there was, there was a movement among some church leaders, um, and it was, it was all about how do churches grow, trying to figure out how do churches grow. And oftentimes, I'm afraid it wasn't necessarily what does the Bible tell us about how do churches grow, but simply what works, you know, what, what works to make churches grow. And what worked apparently was something called the homogenous unit principle. And really basically put, it was the idea that, that people are drawn to others who are like them, who look like them, who have the same kind of cultural customs and everything, and they're kind of like uh, repelled by differences to some extent. Uh, and so if there's, if there's a certain demographic that you want to reach, you got to tailor everything to that demographic as a church. So maybe you decide we're going to be a church for teenagers, or we're going to be a church for white suburban families, or we're going we're gonna to be a church for Asian American immigrants. I've heard of skater churches and biker churches and even cowboy churches. You know, you're just like, if there's a significant enough population of that group, then you're going to see your church grow. And I don't know, maybe sometimes that's how you reach a group of people, and sometimes it's unavoidable. I grew up in a small town called Landmark, Manitoba, and pretty much everybody in our church was uh, a Mennonite of European ancestry, mostly farmers. And that's because that's the only kind of person who basically lived in the town. I have two cousins who were adopted from Kenya, and they grew up in that same town. They stood out just a little bit. Just a little bit. Sometimes it's unavoidable, right? But I think ultimately that, that approach, even though it might work sociologically, falls way short biblically. I think the biblical vision is something that is so much greater than that. And, and I see that more and more here at the Bridge Church. And I hear visitors talking about that. When they come and they visit, they go, wow, like I saw people from every generation. I saw people from all over the world. I think that's incredible. And I think it really prompts our own sanctification as followers of Jesus, because you have to learn how to, how to get along with people who have a very different uh, kind of background, a, di a different cultural kind of background, different generations, right? You have to learn how to sacrifice your own personal preferences sometimes for the sake of other people. And this is a really good thing. In fact, Jesus said this would be one of the ways that people would know that we belong to him. He said they would know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another, because of your, your unity. The unity of Christians across all these different lines is one of the most powerful witnesses to the truth of the gospel. And this, I think, is especially true in a time like ours that is so polarized and so fragmented that genuine Christian unity is such a powerful witness, don't you think? And it was true in the New Testament, 
Here you had Jews and Gentiles who formerly would have had nothing to do with each other, who were separated, at odds with each other, and yet here in the early church, they're worshiping together, they're eating together, they're growing together, they're doing life together. I mean, it's, it, it was beautiful, it was powerful, but it wasn't, it wasn't always peachy keen. It's like, that's a phrase from the 70s too, probably right there. But it wasn't always peachy keen. There were, there were challenges. And we looked at this last week. There were, there were these issues that had been kind of bubbling up under the surface for quite a while. And then they erupt in Acts 15. Because you have all of these Gentiles, these non-Jews who have come to faith in Jesus. And now the question is, do they have to do something in order to really belong? Do they need to become Jewish? Do the men need to get circumcised? And there were some Jewish believers like the Pharisees who said, yeah, that's exactly what needs to happen. And so this whole question, this whole debate came up to Jerusalem as a bunch of leaders gathered together and they they tried to figure this out. And we looked last week at how Peter, one of the most prominent leaders in the early church, he gets up and he says, guys, God already settled this. I saw with my own eyes how God poured out his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles. And they didn't have to become Jewish first. Instead, it was just by faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them. Salvation is through grace. It's by faith. That's what we saw last week. Through grace, by faith, full stop. Now that is the basis for our unity in Christ, is that faith in his grace. But what happens when in the church you still have these people coming together with all of these different uh, backgrounds, uh, generations, and so on? How does the rubber actually hit the road? That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look more at the basis for unity, and then we're going to look at how this actually gets worked out when things are, are challenging. So let's, let's pray and then get into Acts 15. God, I thank you. I thank you that when your people gather together, that you are present. That this right here, not because we're in a building, but because your people are gathered. That this is, this is a temple of your Holy Spirit. And so God, I pray that you would open our eyes, even right now, to the sacredness and the holiness of what is taking place here. As, as we hear your word, and as, as we seek your face... Oh God, I pray that you would that you would speak to us, that you would touch us, that you would that you would transform us, transform our thinking, Lord, that it would align with yours, that it would align with the kingdom of God. I pray that that your Holy Spirit would just have free reign here in our midst now. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we're in Acts 15, we're picking it up in verse 12, where we read this. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, 
telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to send some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Uh, we're gonna st- let, let's pick it up again at the, at the beginning. Let's c- kind of look at what happens there. So uh, Peter has spoken, Paul and Barnabas have spoken, and now James speaks up. And his word seems to really carry some authority. Not because James is like the Pope of Jerusalem and whatever he says goes, but, but he had a certain amount of, uh, of respect, James. James was the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, so when, when Jesus was doing his ministry, James didn't believe that he was the Messiah. We see that from the Gospels. But something happened when Jesus rose from the dead in that immortal, imperishable body. He appeared to his brother James. And James became someone who, who grew up with Jesus, saw Jesus from like childhood. This strictly monotheistic Jew who saw Jesus growing up ultimately became a follower of Jesus, worshiping him as God, serving him as Lord. That must have been pretty persuasive, pretty powerful what he saw to bring about that kind of change in his life. James became so known for his, for his uh, justice, for his, for his wisdom, for his integrity, that he became known as James the Just and became kind of the de facto leader of the church in Jerusalem. So yeah, he, he's got some credibility when he speaks. And he says, first of all, that, that he affirms what Peter has said about the inclusion of the Gentiles. He says, not only has God clearly done this, but actually God had said all along that he was going to do this. This isn't new. God, God, God told us a long time ago. And, and he says the words of the prophets are in agreement about this. And then he goes to a uh, quote specifically from the Old Testament prophet Amos. Now, if you've, got your, if you've got a bulletin or if you've got the sermon outline, it says Hosea. I have no idea why I wrote Hosea there. We're not going to talk about Hosea one bit today. It's, uh, it's Amos is the one that you want. So, so uh, James quotes Amos. And, and I want to spend a bit of time with this passage And for some of you, this is going to be incredibly fascinating. For others of you, a little bit tougher, but just bear with me. There's a payoff at the end. If you have your Bibles and you were to flip to Amos 9, that's not like a hypothetical. You could actually do that. You're welcome to actually do that. Uh, This is what we would read in uh, in Amos 9. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be. 
pretty similar to the passage in Acts. Very similar. You've got the mention about David, the great king of Israel who oversaw Israel in its golden era, saw it at its greatest kind of extent. And God saying, I'm going to rebuild it. The, the, the royalty, the royal house of Israel has fallen into disarray. And God says, I'm, I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to rebuild my, my people. And you see this repetition of, uh, of verbs that start with re, right? You've got rebuild, restore. Um, here you've got return, rebuild, restore. It's, it's that repetition. Uh, I love these kinds of verbs. If, if you know me a little bit, maybe you know what, my, what, what a couple of my favorite verbs are that start with re. Anybody? What? Rebound. <laughs> Rebound. No, I'm thinking spiritually, Nicole. I'm thinking biblically here. I'm not talking about basketball right now. <laughs> I was thinking, the words I was looking for was revive. Ah. And renew. But I love, I love these words that start with read because it says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God does the, the same things he did in the past. He does the same kinds of things now, except that he, that he amplifies them. He extends them. It's, it's like he's, he's bringing things more and more to their complete and full expression. This is, this is what God does, and this is the hope here. Now, in Amos... The effect of that, of God rebuilding and restoring his people in an even greater way, according to Amos, if we go to the next, is the next section is so that they, Israel, may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Edom was a neighboring nation close by to Israel. Uh, when David was the king, Edom was under Israel's control. And so here's God saying, I'm going to give you Edom. And in fact, I'm going to give you all these other nations as well that I've kind of decided to give you. Now, it's a little bit different in Acts 15, isn't it? Because the effect of the rebuilding and restoring is that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. That last part is a quote from Isaiah 45. Now, you look at that and you think, well, that looks a little bit different, right? At first glance, the Amos passage seems to be saying that political Israel is going to win these military victories. They're going to extend their influence and their power. That's the promise. But, but in Acts, it's more about the Gentiles seeking the Lord. So here's the question. Is, is James misquoting scripture? Is he putting words in the prophet's mouth? Is he taking it out of context? Because we would generally say you shouldn't do that. That's not a good thing to do. Is that what James is doing? Here's what you need to know. The, uh, the Old Testament was originally written mainly in, in the language of Hebrew. But most of the Jews in the first century, especially outside of Jerusalem and Judea, they didn't speak Hebrew. The language that they did speak in common was Greek. And so in the few centuries before the events of the New Testament, there was an attempt made to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And that's, that's okay. I mean, obviously, we believe that God's word does not need to be read in its original languages to be the inspired word of God. We believe we can read our English Bibles and that this is the word of God. So it's good. This is what we do too. We translate God's word into the language of the people that, that, can, that they can kind of read and understand. This Greek version was called the Septuagint. And there are some differences between the Septuagint and the Hebrew scriptures, there are some interpretive decisions that get made. 
So, so when James quotes Amos, guess which version he's quoting from? He's quoting from the Greek version. He's quoting from the Septuagint. Whereas when we read Amos in our Bibles, we're reading a direct translation from the Hebrew to English. Does that kind of make sense? That's why there's the difference. Hebrew gets translated to Greek. That's James's version. We translate straight from the Hebrew in our Old Testament scriptures. But here's the thing. James didn't think that he was misquoting scripture. He believed, and, and I would believe too, that what Amos talked about in, in chapter 9 there was actually pointing to what the Septuagint said. That in the end, it actually wasn't about political ethnic Israel at all, but instead, that this was finding its fulfillment in Jesus. So when the Septuagint talks about God returning to his people, James sees that fulfilled in Jesus, that here is God coming to his people, visiting his people in the person of Jesus. When the Septuagint talks about, about God restoring and rebuilding his people, James in the, in the Septuagint would have seen that as being fulfilled as, as Jesus has brought about forgiveness and healing and he's poured out his spirit on his people so that his people live with joy and peace and love. It's, it's not about the political fortunes of Israel increasing, but rather the people of God truly becoming the people of God, being reconciled in their relationship with God, having their character renewed, becoming more and more like him. And so when the Septuagint talks about the Gentiles bearing the name and, and mankind seeking the Lord, that is actually, a, that's being fulfilled in Jesus. It's being fulfilled actually right before the eyes of the early church in the gospel outbreak we've been talking about the last couple of months as the good news goes out and all of these Gentiles, all of these people who are outside of these people far, far away are coming into the people of God, not by military coercion, but because their hearts are being renewed by the power of the gospel and through the Holy Spirit. You see what I mean? This is incredible, isn't it? Like, like, like James says, God knew that he would do this. He knew that he would do this all along. And to think that for James, he's looking at, at what Amos said 800 years previously and seeing how it's now come to fulfillment. I mean, that, that's amazing that that's how God works, isn't it? That he says 800 years in advance, this is what I'm going to do. And it comes true in a way that nobody in Amos's day could have foreseen. Isn't that incredible? Man, you guys are sleepy today. <laughs> Come on. It's good stuff. Now, I want to go back to something, a phrase. Here, and actually, we, we've seen it a few times. Um, I would ask you what it was, but I'd get, like, some kind of basketball reference or something. And then... <laughs> um, the, the word, the, the phrase that we see a few times here is the name. A few references of, of the name. We, we read... James kind of talking about how, how Peter has described for them how God intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And then in the quote from Amos, that the Gentiles who bear my name. Interesting kind of phrase. Whose name do you think we're referring to here? Because the first, first reaction probably is that we're talking about God. The, the name of, of God. The problem there is, is that God is actually less of a proper name and, and more of a title. 
That's why you would have the same word in English, Greek, Hebrew, whatever, describe God, the God of the Bible, the living true God, as well as all the small g gods that people might worship, even if they're not real or, or worthy of it. It's, it's not so much a proper name and more of a title. And, and just talking about God in a kind of a vague general sense wouldn't have been very controversial, of course. Because the thing with that title is that you can kind of fill it with whatever content you want. That, again, that's why people talk about gods, right? Because you can kind of fill that with whatever content you want. I think the clue as to what name we're talking about comes in verse 26, where in the letter that they write to the Gentiles, they talk about Paul and Barnabas, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that, that, that idea of the name in the New Testament is almost always used in reference to Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and, uh, and John are used to, to bring a, a lame man to healing. His ability to walk is restored. And, and the religious leaders of Jerusalem come together and they say, Hey, whoa, whoa, in whose name are you doing this? By what authority are you doing this? Peter and James say, well, Peter and John say, that, well, we're doing this in the name of Jesus. In fact, they say, there is no other name given under heaven by which people can be saved. It's the name of Jesus. That's the name that has the power to save. And the religious leaders go away for a little bit and they say, no, no, this isn't okay. You can no longer preach in the name of Jesus. They would have no problem with them talking about God. But talk about Jesus? No way, you can't, you can't do that anymore. Now, they're not going to listen to that. They're going to keep on doing it, but that's, that's the instruction. Later on, I mean, there's a lot of examples, but just another example is in Acts 19. Uh, through Paul, there's this tremendous display of spiritual power, and we read that in Ephesus, the name of Jesus was held in high honor. See, it's the, it's the name of of Jesus. This, this is the name that the nations, that, that all of saved humanity gathers under. It's this name that the early church proclaimed. Talking about God in a general vague sense wouldn't have gotten them thrown into prison. It wouldn't have the church today persecuted all over the world. The scandal of the gospel is that that idea of God now has a particular content. That Jesus is God in the flesh. That he's the fullness of God in human form. That in Jesus, God has revealed himself to us. The scandal of the gospel is that God has become very particularly expressed and known in Jesus. That's what will get you into trouble. If you don't want to offend anybody, talk about God. Everyone's like, that's great. No problem with that. You want to offend people. Well, not even if you want to offend people, but if you're okay with offending people, talk about Jesus. This is the name. This is the name under which all of humanity, saved, saved humanity, gathers under. This is the name that binds people together who otherwise have all kinds of differences. It's the name that transcends um, socioeconomic differences, ethnic differences, generational differences. It's, it's this name that, that is the, the basis for our unity in the church. And understand as well, by the way, that when we talk about the name of Jesus being the basis for our unity, it's not that anyone who calls themselves a Christian therefore is, is unified. Because, because you could have somebody who says, well, I'm a Christian, but they've actually compromised the core of the gospel 
they're giving greater allegiance to the world than to Jesus. They've actually lost the, they, 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 have, they have forsaken the, the true biblical testimony of who Jesus is. You're not united to somebody just because they say that they're a Christian. You're united to somebody because you share this devotion to Jesus, this worship of him, this, this allegiance to him, to his name. You know what I mean? When I think about the name and, and the unifying power of the name of Jesus, I think about, uh, I think it's about, about a sports team. I do, actually. I think about football in particular because that's what's on my mind today. Later on today, I'm fairly confident that my Winnipeg Blue Bombers are going to win the Grey Cup for the third straight time. Amen, Tim? Thumbs up. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm confident saying that because there are about 10 people in British Columbia who actually care about Canadian football. And my home province of Manitoba has exactly nothing else going for it, so you have to allow us this one boast, right? We have, they just have like flat lands there, so let them have Canadian football. So one of the cool things about football, though, is that you have this, this incredible diversity. You've got, you've got like 350-pound offensive linemen whose one job in life is to get in people's way. And then you have 150-pound wide receivers that are flying around the field. Very different appearances and skill sets. And yet they're t- united together under one team name, one logo on their helmets, one common cause. They all come together for this. Or think about, I think about a family. I think about my, uh, about Carolyn's sister and, and brother-in-law. This is not a picture of them. That's like one of these stock photos that you get in like in the, in the picture frame that you buy from like Superstore and then like Mr. Bean displays it because he thinks it's great. Anyways, it's not actually their family. But, um, but I think about Carolyn's sister and brother-in-law. Uh, they have two adopted sons. And these sons have come from very different cultures, very different parts of the world. They look very, very they just look very different. The whole family just looks very different. And yet they are tied together by one family name. And because of that one family name, they have to figure out how, how to live together. They've got to figure out how to do life together in a household. The family name doesn't eliminate the differences, but it does transcend them. You have, a, you have an allegiance that is higher than those, than those differences. And so the name of Jesus is our family name. This is the name that unites us. This is the name that doesn't eliminate differences, but it transcends them. And so I've said this before, but that means that as much as I love my neighbor down the street and want to know him and, or her and, and serve them and, and, and share with them, at the same time, I am actually more united to a follower of Jesus in rural China or in some prison in Afghanistan Even though I've never met them before, that's my brother or sister. We have the same family name. We're united in this. Now, I said before that the family name, the name of Jesus, transcends differences but doesn't eliminate them. So, the question again is, what do you do when those differences rear their head? When those emerge in life together? That's the kind of the second half of what we're looking at. Some of you grade fives and sevens are like, that's half? Oh my goodness. Yep, that's what, that's what the adults have to suffer through every Sunday, guys. But the, the second half of this is how this gets played out in community life. And we see that in the resolution to the issue, in the letter that they write. And, and notice, first of all, that the issue that was actually up for debate has, has been settled. That the question of whether the Gentiles need to become Jewish, 
The answer is no, a definitive no. No, that does not need to happen. The Gentiles can still eat shrimp. Uh, the men don't have to undergo a, a painful operation, which is good news for us men today, isn't it? 2,000 years later, it's good news that you don't have to become Jewish in order to be part of God's people. But James and the other leaders in Jerusalem say there are some things that you need to abstain from. You know the four things they say again, and they repeat it a couple of times. Food polluted by idols or sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood, which probably almost certainly means uh, eating meat with blood still in it. So rare steaks off the table in the early church. Now the question is, why these four? Why of all the things that you would tell the Gentiles to abstain from, why these four? What about like murder, you know? What, what about lying? What about abstaining from littering or something like that? You know, like let's, let's, let's modernize this a little bit. This is so first century. Why these four in particular? And even these four don't really seem like they're like evenly matched, do they? Like some of these seem like no-brainers, like really big deals, like sexual immorality. It's something that comes up a fair bit in the Bible. It's a pretty prevalent sin in the first century, continues to be today, and it gets a fair bit of attention, not just as like a culturally conditioned thing, but as something that should characterize God's people always. I think about what, uh, what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. A lot of people want to know, what's God's will for my life? Well, that's one, that's one part of it, Paul would say. One part of it is that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. He says it even more directly in Ephesians 5. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. It's like Paul says, like, I know what's going on in the world around. But in the church, this is a huge deal. Always has been, always will be. But then you look at like the meat from strangled animals or from blood, and that doesn't really come up again in the New Testament. It doesn't seem to be a big deal. I mean, I don't know of very many Christians today who have a religious objection to eating rare steak. And I don't know very many Christians who interrogate their servers in restaurants about how their animal died. Although as soon as I, I wrote that and said that, I was like, actually, no, that does happen in like places like Seattle and Portland and Vancouver, but not because people have just read Acts 15, right? They do, they do interrogate their servers about the, how their animals were treated, and that's good, but it's not Acts 15 based. Anyways, some of these things, is they don't seem like they kind of go together, right? So why these four? There's a few ideas, a few possibilities. One possibility uh, is that James and the other leaders are drawing on Leviticus 17 and 18. It's a section of the Old Testament that talks about not eating food with blood still in it and goes into detail about sexual immorality. And interestingly, that text talks about how even the Gentiles who live in the Holy Land, even if they're not Jewish, they still need to adhere to these, to these rules. And so maybe here James is saying, look, you Gentiles, you're now kind of living in holy land. You might not be Jewish, but you're living with other Jews, so you need to respect this. Maybe. Another scholar says that the issue for Jews constantly was the temptation towards idolatry. Towards worshipping a god or an idol that you could actually see and touch and feel and maybe even control and so on. And, and that the greatest temptation to idolatry took place at the brothel 
and at the butcher. That those two places, which are kind of covered right here, those were kind of the primary arenas of temptation. That might be. Uh, another, another person suggests, another writer suggests, that there's a particular practice or place that's being referred to here. And that is the, uh, the temples, the Greco-Roman temples in the ancient world and the idol feasts that would take place in these temples. So these temples, you, you kind of see pictures of, of temples like this and you think, oh, that's like a, a worship space. It was, but it was more than that. It was a community hub. It's where you would go to eat meals with your friends and family. It's where you would have parties and celebrations, where you would honor people in the community. It's where you networked. If you wanted to climb the ladder socially and economically in the ancient world, you went to the temple and you participated in these feasts. And these feasts would uh, include offering food as a sacrifice to this idol, and then everybody would eat it because the idol doesn't actually eat the food. So everybody else eats the food, but it's been sacrificed to the idol first. And oftentimes sexual immorality was, was part of the picture here. It was rampant in Greco-Roman society. When, I, when I've studied, I took a class a few years ago on Greco-Roman culture, and I mean, that, that society was as liberal, liberal, uh, liberated and liberal uh, and saturated with this as our world is today. It was everywhere. And, and the temples weren't off limits because even the gods themselves were sexually promiscuous. So you would, you would eat this food, you would get inebriated, and who knows what happened after that. Uh, and this was a really core aspect of life in Greco-Roman society. You see, what I'm, you see what I'm saying? So may, maybe that is, is, is going on here, although it doesn't seem like the strangled animal or blood thing was a big factor there. So here's, here's where I land, because nobody's quite sure why exactly these four. There's some ideas, but here's where I land. I think whatever else is going on, these four things, these practices, are, are the Gentiles are instructed to abstain from these four in order to maintain un unity with their Jewish brothers or sisters. It was because these four practices were especially prevalent in Greco-Roman society and yet at the same time were especially offensive to Jews that the Gentiles were told, make sure you stay away from these because it's not about your rights. It's not about what you're technically allowed to do or not. Some of these things are straight up immoral no matter what the era. Some of them may be more culturally conditioned. But the point is, if you are going to love one another and live in unity with people from a very different background, you're going to need to lay these things down in order for unity. It's not about your rights. It's about unity. It's about loving one another. And you actually do see this theme come up a bunch of times in the New Testament. So when Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians, this is a, Corinth is a Greek city, uh, lots of Gentiles there. Paul writes this letter, and, and a lot of the Gentile Christians there want to keep on doing the idol feast thing. Paul devotes three chapters to this, because they're like, we really want to still do this? Come on, Paul. Please, 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 please. Can we still go to the idol feasts? And Paul kind of goes, in, in chapter 10, ultimately, he's going to show that actually this is out of bounds for Christians, no matter what. But he says in chapter 8, even if it was okay, even if there weren't any moral issues with it, you still shouldn't do it. And this is why. He says in chapter 8, 
1 Corinthians 8, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Here's Paul saying, look, if my eating meat is going to be a problem for other believers and cause them to stumble and fall, I'm I'm, I'm out. I'm done with meat. I'll never eat it again. That's how much I value the good of others. He says in chapter 10, kind of close to the conclusion of this whole thing, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Paul is saying, look, it doesn't matter. Stop being obsessed with your rights, with your privileges, what you're technically allowed to do or not. That's not the category. That's not how you should be seeing things. It's about what will build others up. It's about what will strengthen their faith. It's about abstaining from the things that will cause them to stumble, that will weaken them. You've got to look out for one another. That's what the church is about. We don't follow Jesus on our own. You can't do that. You need to be in relationship with others. You're part of the body of Christ, strengthening, building one another up. Paul says that's what you should be worried about, not about what you're allowed to do, not about what your rights are. And as, as a follower of Jesus, this really shouldn't feel so foreign to us. Because what is a disciple of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus, Jesus says, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. You are following Jesus, who gave up his life for you. He suffered on the cross. He gave up everything. He gave up the glories of heaven Philippians 2 says he didn't consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant. He went to the cross. He died the shameful death. Not because of self-interest, but because of how much he loves you and cares for you. And so if he says, now if you're going to follow me, I need you to lay some things down for the benefit of others. That's probably not too big of an ask, right? I know we've been through a lot of stuff, so let's summarize. Unity is powerful. It's beautiful. It is one of the most powerful witnesses there is to the truth of the gospel. When, when, we, when we see people coming from all kinds of different generations and backgrounds and cultures all worshiping and serving together under the name of Jesus. But this unity is easier said than done. Things can quickly get in and kind of unravel it. And it's easier just to kind of stick with people who are like us, but it's not biblical. Instead, we are called to grow as followers of Jesus, laying down our own preferences for the sake of others. I don't know how this speaks to you this morning. I don't, I don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing in your, in your heart right now. I, I think that's the key question that we have to ask is, what, what am I called to do in response to this? Because it's not, it, it won't do to kind of say, man, I know that person over there really needs to hear this. Like, I'm glad that they're here today because I've been feeling this for them, you know? <laughs> 
take, take, the, take the beam out of your own eye before you're looking at the speck in the other person's eye. I think somebody said that once too. Examine your own life. Pray about this. Talk about it in your community groups. What does this look like for you? Here's a, here's a couple of just ideas to kind of get us started. Um, one, I think this is, this is for sure uh, something that, that would apply here is, is alcohol. I believe that there is nothing at all wrong with drinking alcohol in moderation with, with self-control. Jesus did that in the Gospels. But if, if, I'm, if I'm in relationship with a brother or sister in Christ who has struggled with alcohol addiction, then, then if I'm in their presence, it's a no-brainer. I've got to lay that down. I could say, well, it's my right. I'm morally justified in drinking this. It's not about that. It's about what strengthens your brother or your sister. So you lay that down. You could hear Paul saying, if my drinking alcohol causes a brother or sister to sin, I'll never drink again. Because the priority here is what's building others up. Honestly, I, and, and, and to me, that one's a more clear one. Here, this one's I'm not quite as sure about. But I think about Halloween. We just came through Halloween. Halloween is a weird, weird day, in my opinion, right? Like, we're in this culture that doesn't even believe in supernatural evil, and yet for a month just celebrates demons and ghouls and death and everything dark. And I, I, don't, I don't know, you know? Like, like our family... Oh, we carved some pumpkins. Natalie dressed up as an angel. Zachary dressed up as a knight. We knocked on like six people's doors for candy. So we, we did participate in it to an extent. But I just, I just think about, you know, the question of whether you should participate in Halloween or not also should factor in brothers and sisters from other cultures where supernatural evil isn't something to be kind of scoffed at or laughed at. They've actually seen it. You know, they've, they've actually witnessed demonic possession. They, they've, they've seen that reality. Some of them have even been saved out of those kinds of backgrounds, animistic backgrounds. And so what effect does my participation in a day like that have on people from those kinds of cultures? That should probably be part of the picture. Again, I think this is, this is something we all have to discern together. What part do you and I play in being an instrument of peace and unity in God's, in, in, in God's people? But I want, I want to finish with this. Because I don't want you to think that this is somehow like another kind of moralism or legalism where you need to do these things in order to be saved. And, and some of you as well, you're not, you're not in a place of faith in Jesus and you're kind of like, I don't know what the point of this sermon was for me. I, I, I want us again to look to Jesus. I, w- I want us again to look at the one who gave up his life for our sake. The, the one who gave up everything so that we could be reconciled to God. See, if we are to do this, if we are to see this supernatural, miraculous, spirit-driven, sacrificial love that is such a powerful witness to others, it's not going to be because we've worked up this kind of heroic strength to do it. It's because we're following Jesus It's because we're keeping our eyes on him. It's because we're worshiping him and reflecting on who he is as the one who gave it all for us. And so that's what I want to end with. That's what I want to send you with. And I want to pray for you about that. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the gift of the church. For the gift of, of unity under the name of Jesus that transcends all of these differences 
I thank you, Lord, that your salvation in our lives isn't just a, a personal transaction between us and you, but Lord, that you have saved us into a family. You have adopted us as children. You have given us a new name, and this is such a gift. This is such a blessing, and we praise you, and we worship you for it. Jesus, we thank you most of all that when we're called to sacrifice things, to lay down our personal preferences for the sake of others, to, to, to look to the good of others before ourselves, as the, the Gentiles were encouraged to do. I thank you, Lord, that we don't do that on our own either. But Jesus, that you have gone before us, that you have given your life for us. You suffered at the cross in our place. You gave up everything because of your love for us. And I just pray, Lord, that that gospel, the gospel of salvation through grace, because of your love for us, would so permeate us and so fill us and so define us that it would so set the, the direction and the, and the way that we view the world Lord, that, that in fact, in the end, we would just find it natural to live in this self-sacrificial way. Lord, that who you are and what you have done, that it would just, that it would just fill us, Lord. Take us over. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for the bridge. I, I pray, Lord, that we would continue to see this unity not from the homogenous unit principle, but the unity under the name of Jesus. And I pray for that, Lord, for the church in North Vancouver, for the church in Canada, that all who pledge allegiance to you above all else, Lord, would be unified, not competing with one another, but unified, and that this too would be a powerful witness to who you are, that the world would see this love that believers have for one another. Forgive us, Lord, for our divisiveness. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have put ourselves ahead of others. Lead us in repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're simply just wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know a little bit more about our church, you can do that through accessing our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to different types of content. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of this world and wants to give you your hope as well. We believe that the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.